Welcome to Crime and Time. On the rocks and locked up. <laughs> yeah, keep keep away from me. We have to make sure we keep our social distance yes, away. Yes, let's, let's keep our social distance. So if, <laughs> if you haven't heard of this show before, we feature a cocktail. Sometimes it's a classic cocktail. Sometimes it's a time-relevant co- cocktail. In this case, it's both. Both, for um, sure. And then we each tell a story. I do a crime story and my partner does a history story. That relates somehow to the cocktail or an ingredient in the cocktail, the name, some way relate to what we're drinking. Right. So being timely and classic, we're doing the quarantini. Quarantini because we're all stuck in our houses. We are all stuck in our houses. So the quarantini, as you might have seen from the popular memes going around, it's just a regular martini, but you drink it at home alone. Um, we did not do the version that has the emergency because, ew, that's gross. Ew, they put an emergency capsule in it? Yes. Oh, yucky. Yeah, not doing that. I'm not messing up this um, St. George gin that I just For bought. sure. That was a very fancy bottle of gin. So anyway, I'm drinking a gin martini and with oh. gin, dry vermouth, and three olives to garnish, and you're drinking... I'm drinking a vodka martini with Tito's vodka and dry vermouth, and the olives were swirled around to give a hint and then exited to the trash can. Sorry, olive lovers. I am not one of you. These olives are from the town that you used to work in. Oh! So they're, um, what do you call that? Artisan. Artisanal. They're artisanal. Very fancy. I remember, I'm not a fan of olives, and I remember years and years ago when I first turned 21, I was having dinner at a popular, or having lunch at a popular Italian restaurant with one of my college professors for some reason. He wanted to take me to lunch because I brought my C up to an A. Was this your econ professor? Yes, it was my econ professor. <laughs> and it, I had just turned 21, so I thought I'd be fancy, and I ordered a beer. And I'm sitting there trying to drink this beer and have this intelligent, grown-up conversation with this professor. And I see something floating in my beer, and I'm trying not to freak out and trying not to panic and just, you know, continue to drink it with that, you know, without screaming. And lo and behold, come to find out after the lunch and after I managed to get through it without too big of a social faux pas... This Italian restaurant puts olives in their draft beer. Yes, they do. <laughs> and I had no idea. Which is charming if you know about beer. it. <laughs> if you don't, you think, oh, wow, where did they wash this glass? And they're they're non-pitted olives. Yeah. They have pits, so they're kind of hazardous. <laughs> it kind of cracked me up. Anyway, I'm going to try my martini. Okay, go for it. Wow, that's good gin. And I just spilled a little, and now I'm sad. The little olives flipped over and hit you <gasps> in the face. So I'm not a huge martini drinker, but I'm going to give this a whirl and we'll see what happens. Okay, I could do that. I might dirty ice it up a little bit. Mm. These olives actually are really good with this gin martini. Oh, good. Now I get it. Good. Now I get the whole thing with the olives. What else do they put in martinis besides olives? Onions? Onions, um, lemon twist. Ah, that would work. Yeah. My dad likes his with a lemon twist. He used to do olives, but... I wonder what a little splash of lemon juice would do. You could always just do that sh- spritz, you know, like from the lemon twist itself. Yes. Mm. I'm just thinking of it right now because I don't have any lemons. Anyway, so can I do mine first? Yes. So I'm going to tell you about Elliot Roger. Okay, so 
looking up quarantine in this day and age that we're living in, uh-huh. it's mostly all time relevant, like new stuff. And I couldn't really find anything about specific crimes that occurred when people were under quarantine or anything exotic. But I did find this. So okay. this is Elliot Roger, and this is a quote from his manifesto. Manifesto. Yeah. Okay. I would quarantine all women in concentration camps. At these camps, the vast majority of the female population will be deliberately starved to death. Oh my goodness. That would be an efficient and fitting way to kill them all off. I would have an enormous tower built just for myself and gleefully watch them all die. Okay. So he doesn't like women, I'm guessing? He doesn't probably like anyone, but... Wow. How does he... I wonder how he thought we were going to carry on the human race. So, let me tell you about Yeah, tell me about May 23rd, the rest of his 2014. Adventures. So, May 23rd, 2014 in Isla Vista, California, which is near UC Santa Barbara, a killing spree occurred. The killer was previously mentioned, Elliot Roger. He was 22 years old and he killed 6 people and injured 13 before killing himself. So, just about two years prior to that, in September of 2012, Roger went to a shooting range for the first time to begin to learn how to shoot firearms. Two years he picked up a gun for the first time? Uh-huh. Wow. The next month, he purchased his first handgun, which was a Glock 34 pistol. And after doing research on handguns, he chose the Glock because it was judged to be an efficient and highly accurate weapon. I like a Glock. I mean, he did his research, mm-hmm. so... He was a college student, so. (laughs) Um, In the spring of 2013, Roger bought two additional handguns. They were both Sig Sauer P226 pistols, which means something to somebody, I'm sure. Uh He decided that they were a much higher quality than the Glock and a lot more efficient. Okay. Were they matching? The two. matched set? I guess. (laughs) Maybe they were dueling pistols. He bought them in different cities, too. Oh, wow. Huh. So I guess he didn't want to, like, raise any type of suspicion. Yeah. Um, Even though the Department of Justice knows everything. They track them. Yeah. (laughs) We have computers. So the killing spree began at Roger's apartment, and um, there three men were found dead. They were stabbed to death, and police removed a knife, a hammer, and two machetes from the apartment, but they didn't disclose which weapons or weapon were used in these murders. Okay, if you're just going to stab somebody and bludgeon somebody else with a hammer, why did you need to spend the money on guns? Oh, he'll he'll get plenty of use out of his guns. Oh, okay. Want to make sure he's not wasting. Yeah. Um, let's see. That was in bad taste, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Most likely, all three of the men were sleeping when they were murdered. Oh, So about 8.30 that night, Roger was seen sitting in his car in the parking lot of his apartment building working on his laptop. During that time, he uploaded a video titled Retribution to YouTube at 9.17 p.m. And he sent his manifesto via email at 9.18 p.m. After that, he drove to that... Oh, sorry. Hey, how come good guys don't ever write manifestos? I know. So Roger then drove to the Alpha Phi sorority house and knocked on the sorority house door for a few minutes, but nobody answered. After that, he began shooting anyone who was nearby. (laughs) Two women were killed and a third was wounded. And then he fired at a nearby couple. The man was wounded and the woman was superficially grazed. He then got in his car and he drove to the Isla Vista Deli Mart. He briefly got out of his car there and fatally shot a woman who was inside the deli. 
His car was seen, seen leaving the scene by four responding police officers, but at that time they did not had not identified the shooter, so they didn't know it was him. So they just, did they think maybe, well, we don't know what they thought, but so he's traveling as he's shooting, so it could be. No, at this point, well, yeah, but at this point, in this instance, he got out of the car, shot at the person in the deli, got back in the car and left. So the But then po- went to a different part of town and shot some more. He's going to, yeah. But, um, yeah, so the police saw a vehicle and recognized the vehicle, not knowing that that was the, the suspect in this shooting. Got it. So he continued to drive south, and he was in the northbound lane of Embarcadero Norte, and he fired at two pedestrians, but he missed. And as he continued driving the wrong way, he <laughs> got near a 7-Eleven, and he continued to shoot. He hit a woman in the leg. And he kept driving. He shot at another woman, but he missed. And then he exchanged exchanged fire with a sheriff's deputy. Ooh. So during this incident, while the during the gunfire exchange, Roger hit and struck a bicyclist. So then he started turning north on Camino del Sur, which I think might mean he's still going in the wrong lane. He shot and wounded three people. Then he turned east and struck two skateboarders and shot another person in the intersection. So he's just deadly with everything. 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 Yeah. And Hit then, him with a car. Shoot him. Stab him. Lunge him with a hammer. So then he's near this park. It's called Little Acorn Park. And he again exchanged gunfire. This time it was with three sheriff's deputies. He ended up being wounded in the left hip, but he was able to leave the scene in his car, and this time he struck another bicyclist, and then he crashed near the intersection of Del Playa and Camino Pescadero. Uh, Upon um, finding the car, Roger was dead with a gunshot wound to the head, and obviously in an apparent suicide, they determined later. And in the aftermath, police investigated 12 separate crime scenes. Wow. Yeah. He got around. They searched Roger's car and they found three 9mm semi-automatic weapons and more than 400 rounds of unspent ammo. Wow. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown said that the crime was premeditated and that the preparations took place over a year. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office and the BATF began searches of the home of Roger's mother and of his father. They lived in separate homes. Uh The media later reported that there were frantic attempts by the parents to intervene the night that Roger did his killing spree. So Roger's therapist was one of the people that got a copy of the manifesto. She immediately called Roger's mother. The mother checked the YouTube channel, and that's where she found the video retribution. She called Roger's father, and together they drove to Isla Vista. During the drive, the mom called the police, and they arranged to meet to try to figure out what is going on with her son. Is he still alive at this, while this is happening? This is while this is all happening. Got it. So also on the drive, they heard the news reports of the shootings in Isla Vista. Oh, how awful for a mother. I know. His mother called the therapist and the therapist assured her it was unrelated, but (laughs) it wasn't. It wasn't. So then she said, according to the manifesto, or the therapist said that according to the manifesto, Roger had planned to do do his acts the following day and that he would be unlikely to deviate from his plans. But she was wrong. Yeah. So they finally got to the police station and his parents learned that the reports were about their son and that he had killed six people. 
how hard. I cannot even imagine what that must feel like. I know. All of the murder victims were students at UC Santa Barbara, which is like a huge deal. Yeah, nice school. Um, well, not only that, but just because I work on a campus, like even if like one person stubs their toe, everybody's like <laughs> talking about it. So at graduation, which was later that June, all six of the victims were given posthumous degrees and the oh. living victims by that time had all been released from the hospital. Looking back on it, like the family attorney said that Roger had been seeing multiple therapists since he was eight years old. And he claimed that Roger was receiving psychiatric treatment, but he had not been diagnosed with a mental illness. Hmm. By ninth grade, Roger wrote that he was increasingly bullied and that he cried by himself at school every day. I mean, who doesn't? Right. In ninth grade. Yeah. Ninth grade is awful. Yeah. Um, Roger had a YouTube channel and his blog was titled Elliot Rogers official blog. Really creative. Yeah. Um, both contained posts expressing his loneliness and his rejection. He wrote that he had been prescribed risperidone, which I don't even know what that's for, but I guess it's like for your anxiety or depression or psychiatric issues. I don't know. Everything is so quick. Here's a pill. Here's a pill. Yeah. Well, he refused to take it. And he said, after researching this medication, I found that it was the absolute wrong thing for me to take. Oh. I'm thinking though that. When did he get his medical degree? Yeah. Maybe he should have tried it. So after he turned 18, Roger began rejecting any of the mental health care that his family had gotten for him. He became more and more isolated, probably would have liked being quarantined. <laughs> he claimed that he was unable to make friends, but other people have, had said that he straight up rejected them. Hmm. So it's almost like he was so isolated that he didn't even want to try to have friends. Right. Uh, his manifesto was 107,000 words long. And it was titled, My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Roger. He emailed it to about a dozen people, including his therapist, his parents, some other family members, some childhood friends. So he's got friends. He did. And to some former school teachers. Can you imagine getting one of those? No. So in the YouTube video, Retribution, he complained of being rejected by women, and he laid out his details of his planned attack. He also laid out his motivations and his plans. After the killings, though, the video was removed from YouTube, by YouTube, because yeah. it wasn't something that they would leave up. Yeah. But there were copies that had been reposted by others. So the video, in the video he says, well, this is my last video. It has all come to this. Tomorrow is the day of retribution, the day in which I will have my revenge against humanity, against all of you. I'm biting my tongue so hard. Like, so, so hard. I know. For the last eight years of my life, ever since I hit puberty, I've been forced to endure an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires. All because girls... You were not forced to endure that! All because girls have never been attracted to me. Girls have their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. Ew. He also said in his manifesto that being mixed race made him different and that he was different than the fully white kids. He um, had some racist views too. He opposed interracial dating and he made some racist posts that I'm not going to repeat because they're gross. Good. The man manifesto also specifically mentioned a war on woman, women where he said, the second phase will take place on the day of retribution itself, just before the climactic massacre, my war on women. 
I will attack the very girls who represent everything I hate in the female gender, the hottest sorority of UCSB. Oh my gosh. So now that made me wonder, this might be like distasteful. So apparently the Alpha Phi are the hottest sorority at UCSB because that's who he was attempting to attack. And if you just, not everybody's going to get the love of their life in high school. Not everybody's going to find the love of their life in their first couple of years of college, but every pot has a lid. Yeah, I've been to Walmart. I've seen couples that yeah. there's somebody for everybody. There is, and just wait and keep talking to people and keep trying. Don't shoot people and bludgeon them with hammers. No. Oh my gosh. So then this is like the last part that I have. Roger's parents later released a statement saying, we are crying in pain for the victims and their families. It breaks our heart on a level we didn't think possible. The feeling of knowing that it was our son's actions that caused the tragedy can only be described as hell on earth. Wow. So you have to feel, I mean, like the parents. Oh, yeah, I'm heartbroken for them. I don't know, like, their whole story, but from what I read, it seems like they did attempt their very best to make sure he was getting the help he needed. They got him help. They did. But when you're 22, you can reject any of that help and there's nothing they can do for you. Right, right, for sure. But not that, you know, most of our audience skews our age or a little older. But if you are, you know, 15 or 22 or anywhere in that range, it's going to get better. It's going to get better every day. Until you reach about 45. <laughs> <laughs> then your knees start to hurt and J your eyes go bad. <laughs> JK, I just turned 45, so. Yeah, you, it, uh, that's heartbreaking. So quarantine, you did it because he would enjoy quarantine? That and, like, his quote about how all women should be, should be quarantined. quarantined. Which we are right now. We are. He might like that, except for also the men are also The men are also included. quarantined, yeah. Yeah, everybody is. Although I just saw a family walking down the street, which looks very nice. I did, I saw them too. I like that we can go outside, that we're not stuck inside our homes. We're, we can't go socialize, but we can at least go, you know, to the outdoors. Yeah, I think I'm going to wash my car later. Mm. I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do today. Um, husband was talking about going to the snow. So that's a possibility for tomorrow, I think. Oh, fun. Yeah. And I always think that I would enjoy going to the snow, and then I get there, and I'm miserable. You know? Hot chocolate and schnapps. <laughs> I always think, oh, the snow's so fun. So I'm going to tell a story about someone that if you listen to podcasts, you've probably heard this story quite a few times, but I just think it's interesting, and I hope I can find some other details that are a little bit entertaining. Um, but I want to tell you about quarantine first. Quarantine. The name quarantine comes from the 14th century Venetian practice of requiring ships coming from plague-infested areas to sit at anchor for 40 days. And it literally means, um, they called it quarantine because that literally means 40 days. Quarta Gironi in Italian. Um, this quickly developed into... You know, first they're keeping ships that have come from an area away. This quickly developed into people who are sick, staying away. Um, isolating sick people was first used in 1377 in Dubrovnik on the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. Um, they would often, besides keeping away sick people, they would sometimes keep away people they didn't particularly like. Like, you know. Weirdos. Weirdos and 
a little further than that, maybe some like minorities that they didn't like, think Jews. Oh, I wasn't thinking that at all, but oh. that makes me a little sad because I was like, oh yeah, that's a good thing. Like, <laughs> you're a little weird. You go do your own thing by yourself. What was your dude's name? Elliot. Elliot. Keep the Elliots away. If your name is Elliot, I'm not picking on you. I was referring to her Elliot who went on a crime spree. Um, so anyway, they would keep them away. Armed guards would sit along the transit roads and access points to the city to keep people who were not supposed to be in out. And this would be punishable by death. Um, Venice also opened the first permanent plague hospital away from the rest of the population. I keep using my hand to signal away, but none of you can see me. I can. (laughs) On, they put it on the island of Santa Marina di Nazareth. Um, they were called Lazarathos after Lazarus. Oh, okay. Um, and began popping up all over Europe. When a national barrier, when they had a natural barrier like water or river, they would use that. If they didn't, they would dig a big ditch around the hospital. Yeah, because there was that one. Um, it's well known for like its paranormal activity, but yeah. Proviglia Island. Yeah. Um, I listened to that on another podcast. Yeah. That we listened to. Yeah. Um. That's why we drink, right? I didn't hear it, uh, but... Yeah, I think that was it. Um, so anyway, they would dig a ditch around the hospital. Um, they believe if any goods had been exposed to an illness, they would go through a purigation period. They would put blankets and wool and yarn and cloth and leather, um, wigs. They thought soft things were more likely to carry disease, and they would leave them out to let them go- undergo continuous ventilation. Hard objects were immersed in running water for 48 hours. Um, the time of 40 days is thought to be from the time needed to avoid contamination was based on writings from Hippocrates and his theories regarding acute illness. They also thought that the number 40 had been chosen because of the um, its connection with the Pythagorean theorem of numbers and um, the biblical significance of 40, having you know Jesus stayed in the desert for 40 days. Um, and so it was a natural progression to think that that's the amount you need to, to quote, dissipating the pestial miasma from the bodies and goods. I mean, they weren't wrong. Yeah, it seems like a good amount of time. Probably how long we're going to be doing what we're doing. Right. Interesting, interesting. So John and Catherine Millard. Now I'm getting to my actual topic topic. John and Catherine Millard had a cute little baby girl. They had her on September 23rd, 1869 in Cookstown, Ireland. Their sweet little girl grew up and left home for America at the age of 15. She's going to make her way on her own. As many of them did. Correct. In 1883, young Molly Malone arrived in New York. She was 15. She lived with her aunt and uncle, um, as, you know, immigrants would do when they first got to the country. And she found work as a domestic, which was very common for young women at the time to work um, in a rich household doing some sort of domestic work. They discovered that she was a good cook, and they put her to work cooking. So she became pretty good at this and people liked her cooking so she would cook for very wealthy families she started working in mamarack new york as a cook and just after two weeks that she was there some of the family in the household started getting sick oh i know what you're telling me about yeah so molly didn't want to be around sick so she left in 1901 she was working in manhattan and the family she was working for started to get sick again 
this crazy sickness. They developed a very high fever and diarrhea and um, a laundress that was working in the household with Molly actually died. Oh, goodness. So, you know, not wanting to be around sick people again, she moved on. She went and worked in a lawyer's house and seven out of the eight people that lived in that house got sick. I like how she has the sense to leave because she doesn't want to be around all the illness. Totally. She wants to stay safe. (laughs) She's practicing her social distancing. So in 1906, she was working for a household of a wealthy banker named Charles Henry Warren. And the Warrens really liked Molly. She was great uh, when she was cooking their food. Um, The Warrens thought she was super, super that they rented a house in Oyster Bay, Long Island for the summer, which is what you do when you're rich. And they brought Molly along where while she was there, she prepared one of her very famous summer dishes that she liked to prepare of ice cream with fresh cut peaches. Mm. So you don't cook ice cream and fresh cut peaches. That sounds amazing, though, like fresh peaches and homemade ice cream, like with actual cream, not like the crap they sell at the store now. Yeah, yeah. But without the fecal matter. Without the fecal, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> when you cook the food, the any germs that are in the food likely die from the heat. This was not cooked. It's not her fault. She didn't know she that. She didn't know. Nobody yes. knew that. Yes. And probably not even her fault that she didn't wash her hands. I mean, it is. She could have taken the time to wash her but hands. But nobody knew that. Nobody knew that at the time. And also, when you're busy and your family wants their food, you know, she had to keep her job. Quick, quick, fast. So um, from August 27th to September 3rd, six out of the 11 people living in the house got sick. Two of the daughters, two maids, and the gardener all got sick. So we know who really likes ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's interesting, though, that some of the other domestic help are getting sick because that means they're also eating the food that's meant for the wealthy people. And if you look at shows like Downton Abbey, the they domestics aren't meals. eating the same food. Yeah, yeah, they had separate meals. But, I mean, it could have just been a matter of, you can have our leftovers. Yes, that's very true. So this time, the family was actually diagnosed with typhoid fever. And that was thought to be very odd because that disease was very uncommon for that time of year in Oyster Bay. And so Mary peaced out. I don't want to be sick. I'm leaving. Then she continued to work, and everywhere she went, people kept getting sick. It was very odd. She couldn't figure it out. So meanwhile, back in Oyster Bay, the people who owned this house were paranoid that since typhoid was thought to be carried through water, the water supply, um, they were afraid that their house would never rent again if they had a reputation of having typhoid in their house. So they hired investigators from the New York City Department of Health. They tested the land and the water and the plumbing. They couldn't find anything, but they just kind of chalked it up to, well, it must have just been the water at that time. Or it could have been, I mean, you could almost say, like, these people came here with it. Right. Because they were only renting the house. Right. Yeah, so they, it was not deemed to be the homeowner's fault. Um, one of the investigators was a civil engineer named George Soper, and he had experience with typhoid outbreaks, and he, he just wasn't quite satisfied with that answer. He just kept, it was like that little string that he just kept tugging. So he continued to look into it. So meanwhile, Mary's going on job after job. In 1907, she took a job in a Park Avenue home, and that winter, winter, Another typhoid outbreak happened in the home of Mary's employer. But this time, someone died. So now two people, I think, have died. Is typhoid, like, is it, I know, obviously, it's seasonal because you kind of alluded to that, but it's it's not a winter thing? I don't know. I always thought it was, like, maybe I'm thinking of something else. The summer with the mosquitoes. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Malaria? Malaria. I think that's what I'm thinking of is malaria. But 
regardless like it's happening when it's not supposed to exactly on occasion yes so um george soper noticed you know another typhoid outbreak in new york and he started looking into the commonalities with all of these different typhoid outbreaks what is happening that they're popping up all over the city um soon he noticed that all of the households had recently um hired a nice wonderful new cook right before they got sick and her name was molly malone so he was actually able to link her to seven jobs over seven years where there were 22 sick people and two deaths happening so now he's just got to prove it he knows i wonder if he had one of those boards with all the yarns on it and like pictures i almost spit out my vodka that's hysterical (laughs) (laughs) i would kind of love it if he did so he's got to prove it. So he tracks Mary down and he finds her in the home of Walter Brown in March 1907. And he approaches her. And this I can just kind of picture. He's in his little brown suit with his little derby hat. And she's in the house cooking. And he walks up and he says, um, he tells her about his theory. And he says, I would like to you to give me a sample of your blood, your urine, and your feces. And she um, shakes promptly- his hand. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been fine, but no, she chased him out of the house with a carving fork. Wow. <laughs> yes. I don't know how I would react if someone came to my place of business and said, can you give me some of your pee, your poop, and your blood, please? I'm going to need all the samples from all you. All of the samples. Give me any bodily secretions. Um, so he ran out and he said he was very lucky that he escaped. But he's determined. He's gonna. He wants her samples. So he takes his assistant, Dr. Burt Raymond Hobbler, and they go to Mary's house. And this time, she just yelled and cursed at them until they finally gave up and left. They're not doing a good job. They're not doing a good job <laughs> at all. So Soper is sure that he's right. He just knows he's right. So he turns his information over to Herman Biggs at the New York City Health Department. I feel like Herman's got a little bit more weight behind him. Herman's got a little bit more weight behind him. Um, So he agrees with this hypothesis and he sends Dr. S. Josephine Baker to speak with Mary. Now, Mary is beginning not to trust city officials because they're trying to harvest her blood, feces, and urine and annoying her. And she's just trying to get her job done. So she doesn't trust them. Here's the part I don't get. This whole time, she's known something's wrong. Like at this point, it's been brought to her attention like three times two times yeah there could definitely be a problem with you and this whole time she's been moving on moving on moving on because all these people are getting sick Uh and some are dying she can't put two and two together at this point that maybe it's a good idea i think there's probably some denial there (sighs) (laughs) she's got to make a living she's got to earn her keep so yeah so she's not about to trust any public health official and so she um and ran Baker off too. She runs him out. So he decides he's going to get this. So he comes back with five police officers and an ambulance. And Mary is not going to go easy. She's um, got her trusting carving fork. And she peeks out the window and sees him. And then Baker just opens the door to come in. Mary lunges at him with the carving fork. He goes backwards. Like, I can see this playing out. He falls backwards into one of the police officers. There's a big melee where everybody's trying to catch their balance. And Mary is gone. She's just... She's like split-soid. Yeah. So they start searching the house. And eventually they discover tiny little footprints. 
<laughs> that lead out of the house into the backyard to a chair that's propped up against a fence. Oh my God, she jumped over the fence. So they start searching that house and the neighbor's house. They searched for five hours. And then finally somebody sees a little bitty piece of calico sticking out of the door jam of a closet underneath the stairs. Now, she's been in the closet for five hours. So they open the door. And this is how Baker describes the scene. This is a quote from this Dr. Baker. She comes out fighting and swearing, both of which she could do with an appalling efficiency and vigor. I love the way they talked back then. I make, made another effort to talk to her sensibly and asked her again to let me have the specimens, but it was of no use. By that time, she was convinced that the law was wantingly persecuting her and she, when she had done nothing wrong she knew she had never had typhoid fever she was maniacal in her integrity there was nothing i could do but take her with us the policeman lifted her into the ambulance and i literally sat on her all the way to the hospital <laughs> it was like being in a cage with an angry lion <laughs> end quote she needs to give it up though like they have to do what they have to do. They have to do what they have to and do. And she knows. Yes. Oh, she has to know. So um, when they took her to, they took her to Willard Parker Hospital and they forcibly took the samples and ran the tests. And sure enough, she had salmonella, salmonella typhal bactyli in her stool. Mary was immediately sent off to a cottage on North Brother Island in the East River. And it was part of the Riverside Hospital and she was isolated there. This is where you live now. Sounds kind of nice, though. I know. I would... Because she's got a dog, and she just has this little cabin. I want somebody Although, to pay all my bills and just hang out with my dog. After two days of being with my dogs and doing work from home, <laughs> kind of over it. She doesn't have to work. I know, but even if I didn't have to work, at least that distracts most of my day. Yes, that's true. It's super boring being home alone <laughs> all the time. And we have way more to entertain ourselves than she did then. That's true. Yeah. So, the health officials said that they had the power to hold her um, without a trial from sections 1169 and 1170 of the Greater New York Charter. 1169 said that officers could um, take any reasonable means to determine the cause and existence of a disease threat that is a danger to the public life and health. And so that's how they got the samples. And 1170 says that the board may remove any, quote, person to be determined with, quote, sick or any contagious pestilence or infectious disease. And that the hospital can take them and keep them out of other, away from other people. Um, they can take charge of that person's care. But Mary wasn't sick. And that was the word that she was hung up on because in, in 1170, it says sick with any contagious pestilence or infectious disease. What I'm wondering though is, you might be getting to this, so stop me if I'm jumping ahead, but can she be treated the same way one would be treated for typhoid fever and be like non-contagious? I don't think so. And I do talk about that a little bit later that some people just become healthy carriers after they've had the disease. Typhoid can apparently have a very mild case in some people where you just think you have the flu. Like you just have a little fever, some body aches, little bit of diarrhea you're good but she didn't have anything she's just carrying it right right but who knows if she thought she had a flu you know at a different time yeah that's true yeah um but once you're a carrier you're a carrier however there was something that she could have done that she refused to do which wash we'll her hands well yes that too <laughs> yeah wash your hands with soap but so she's she wasn't sick and she really feels that she's being unfairly persecuted because um how could she make people sick if she was healthy she just didn't understand that 
So she's on the island for two years. And after two years, she sues for her freedom from the hospital. Um, the hospital was conducting weekly stool samples. And of the weekly stool samples that the hospital collected, only 120 out of 163 tested positive. That's still a lot. It's still a lot. But so Mary finds this out and she starts having her own lab conduct her own stool samples. And How does she have the money to do that? We'll talk about that in a minute. And that comes back... Um, all of hers come back negative for typhoid. So in her petition, she says, this contention that I am a perpetual, perpetual menace is in the spread of typhoid germs is not true. My own doctors say that I have no typhoid germs. I am an innocent human being. I have committed no crime and I am treated like an outcast, a criminal. It is unjust, outrageous, and uncivilized. It seems incredible that a Christian community, that in a Christian community, defenseless women can be treated in this manner. I love the... Um, I am, it is unjust, outrageous, and uncivilized. Uncivilized. Yes. So the judge, however, ruled in the favor of the health department. And Mary, who was now being referred to as Typhoid Mary in the press, because the press was not very nice um, to her, remained in the custody of the Board of Health of the city of New York. And off she goes back to her little island in the East River. Um, the press was having an absolute field day with Mary's story. They were publishing stories and cartoons, all referring to her as Typhoid Mary. In 1907, when she was first arrested, the San Jose Evening Post published, this case is without parallel in medical records. Never has there been an instance of, as the present, where, woman, where a woman who has never had typhoid fever should prove a veritable germ factory. So she was the very first healthy carrier that they ever identified. Obviously, the press is very interested in this, and they keep asking for interviews and pestering her, and you asked where she got the money to... Interviews. ...have her defense? No. Oh. <laughs> William Randolph Hearst <gasps> finance. Are you serious? They, ha they haven't proved it, proven it, but it is a widely known speculation because he did it with other um, big sensationalist cases. Poke the bear. Poke, Poke the, the bear. bear. Because it's going to sell the paper. Yeah. If there's more, if this case is in the news more, you're going to sell more news. So let's give them some money so they can make more news. We need to do just like straight up a whole podcast on him. I was thinking the same thing. Like you could do the crime on the boat. Uh-huh. And I could just talk about his ridiculously fast, fascinating life. Stay tuned, folks. It's coming. It's coming. We got to figure out a drink. We should find out what he drank. I'm Googling it right now while you're talking. Okay. So Hearst financed bankrolled her thing. Um... In 1910, New York got a new health commissioner, and he decided that Mary could go free as long as she promises that she's never, ever going to cook again for people. <laughs> so Mary says, oh, sure, I'll go. I won't do that anymore. So off she goes, and she worked as a laundress and a domestic for a little while. Um, no one knows why. But then in January 1915, the Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan has a typhoid fever outbreak. Oh, <laughs> 25 doctors, nurses, and staff got sick, and two more people died. That's a lot. Yes. So by this time, they their cook wasn't Mary Malone. It was a sweet middle-aged woman named Mary Brown. Oh, she changed her name. <laughs> so it didn't take very long for the, the doctors to determine that obviously it's Mary Malone. Um, she was arrested on March 27th, 1915. As she was literally taking food to a friend's house. Oh, no. She's like, I'm just bringing them a casserole. <laughs> yes. So they arrest her. Off to the island she goes. Um, while she's in the island at this point, they are now allowing, like, 
doctors and nurse trainees to have access to her. So they're poking her and prodding her and talking to her and talking about her and um, all kinds of stuff. And she hates it. She felt that she was being treated very unjustly. She was never sick with typhoid, so how could she carry it? Has she not seen the evidence? Like, does... Like, someone needs to be like, okay, here's a girl your same age who also came from Ireland who has worked in all these households and how many of them have died or gotten sick? Like, and no hands go up. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think, yes. I, I'm sure it was some denial. But so with these medical students and whatnot, sorry, quarantine pause, um, one, someone suggested that they could remove her gallbladder because they had theorized that that's where the virus was replicating, was in her gallbladder. And she completely refused. No, I'm not having surgery. No, 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 no. Well, that's probably smart on her part. Well, yeah. So they let her, she stayed on the island. Sometimes they let her work. She eventually became a quote unquote nurse to help with the tuberculosis patients. She was able to work in the lab and wash bottles and things like that. Whenever she would be interviewed by the press, though, they told the reporters to not even accept a glass of water from her hand. I don't think I would have to be told that. I don't think I'd have to be told that either. But yeah, so she's like a leper over there. So a package delivery man, sadly, on Christmas morning in 1932 was delivering a package to Mary's cottage and found her on the floor. And she had had a major stroke that left her completely paralyzed. And she died on November 11th, 1938. She sat for six years in a bed paralyzed after a stroke with typhoid or not with typhoid but being a carrier for typhoid so people aren't like they're not yeah they're not trying to give her the best care possible yes so she was 69 when she died and an autopsy revealed that there was typhoid bacteria in her gallbladder so possibly if she had the operation she may have been cured interesting yes um so mary always felt that she was being completely persecuted unfairly because she was irish or a domestic or oh child number one do a little happy face real high mom they leave me notes in the cutest places on my notebook here so anyway so she felt she was being persecuted because she was irish immigrant or a domestic or she was not a breadwinner didn't have a family to support she was an unmarried woman in the early 20th century that was kind of a no-no um she was the first healthy typhus carrier to be found but she was not the deadliest there was an average at that time of 3,000 to 4,500 new cases of typhoid fever diagnosed every year and during that time 90 to 135 people per year would become healthy carriers that could pass on this germ in their secretions I say um a lot. I just noticed that. So, but some people, they suspected Mary get such a mild case of typhoid, like I said, that they just think they have a small flu. So 400, so there's some pe- more people that can be healthy carriers that just don't, didn't know that they had full-on typhoid. So 400 healthy carriers have been identified since the time just in New York before Molly died. Tony LaBella made 122 people sick and five people died. He was put into isolation for two weeks and then they said, oh, Tony, you can go. You're it's fine. Because you're not Irish domestic. Right. And then another man named Alphonse Cotless was a baker and he was ordered not to prepare food for anyone, but he was found back at work in his bakery. And so they arrested him again. He's like, I'm just a baker. I'm just a baker. So they arrest him and keep him again for a little while. And then he said, I won't bake anymore. I'll conduct my business by the phone. Now, how do you conduct a bakery via phone? 
I don't know. I'm sure someone here can tell us because they're probably going through it right now. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but I, did, I didn't write this down, but I found another quote from Anthony Bourdain explaining how in his biography. R.I.P. Yeah. I knew, I knew that you liked him. So that's I why. love him. Uh, explaining his biography, how he kind of understood Mary. He said, if you're a cook, you're just a cook. It's in your blood. You have to do it. And he said, cooks, and this is kind of frightening because I know they do. I've worked in the restaurant industry enough. Cooks will cook when they're sick because if most chefs, if you don't come to work, you don't get paid. And mm -hmm. so you go to work, even if you're sick and... There you go. So you'd be surprised by what you'd find in a restaurant kitchen. I've read his his books. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Typhoid Mary. Hopefully I added some, found some other details that maybe not everybody had done because I've seen her done everywhere. They even have drunk history on her. They keep saying, wash your hands. She didn't know though. Like, she didn't. I mean, she honestly, like the early part of it, she was completely innocent. Yeah. The latter part of it, she probably needed to have a little more um like wherewithal to grasp that she does have a problem yes yes and also just there probably was some persecution not necessarily with her but just of women and immigrants and domestics in general yes so she may have just been thinking oh this is just part of that conspiracy and whatnot well look at all the people that have said this is nothing yeah i yeah. mean that was still being bantied around i'm still seeing posts on facebook with people saying oh, this is dumb, this is whatever. Well, ideal situation is that we go through these, like, weeks or days or however long, you know, we need to do be apart and we come out thinking it's nothing. Right. So let's all hope for that. Hopefully, yes. So there you go. We're not experts on typhoid fever or the coronavirus. No, we're just drunks. Definitely that. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is Crime and Time OTR at gmail.com. Email is where you, want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crime and time otr and we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons absolutely i'm excited see you there thank you for listening